How y'all doing? You good? You happy to be in church? Excellent. You might probably work out I sound a little different. G'day, mate. Crikey! It's uh, good to be here. Hopefully you can understand me. You don't need any interpretation. Hopefully I don't swear. I've been in a church. You know, there's a lot of words in Australia we're allowed to say. And I sort of learnt the hard way that you're not allowed to say them in America. And uh, so I am a bit more trained, so hopefully uh, we'll be okay with that. But I, uh, I lived in uh, Australia for about 40 years of my life. I've been living in America for the past thir- uh, three years, uh, suffering for Jesus in San Diego. So please pray for me. It's tough, um, especially at winter. Sometimes it gets down to 70. And now, now you all hate me. Um, but I've been living here three years. And I'm actually now legitimately about 9% American, okay? The reason I'm 9% American is because when I arrived three years ago, I was about 220 pounds, and now I'm about 242. So this part here was actually born in the United States of America uh, because the food is just ridiculous. And uh, I just, I just seriously, I hope I'm not telling that joke in 10 years, but I'm like 30% American, do you know what I'm saying? Um... But, uh, but it's so good to be here, and I'm excited. I love your senior pastors. I've had a great time hanging out with them, and uh, it's been, been really cool. And you guys are really blessed. Can we give them a big round of applause? They're doing such a great job. What they've built here is incredible in such a short amount of time. And uh, so I grew up in a place called Melbourne, uh, Australia, and uh, my, my, my parents divorced when I was about five. Uh, my dad did drugs pretty bad. He also sold drugs. Uh, my mum also dabbled in drugs. Most of my aunties and uncles did drugs. Uh, even some of my grandparents did drugs. Uh, you know you're in trouble when granddad smokes bongs. Okay, that's a bad start to life. And, uh, but I followed in my dad's footsteps. And at about 12, I started to smoke cigarettes, binge drink, uh, marijuana. At 15, I started injecting uh, amphetamines, taking acid, ecstasy. At 16, I took an acid trip at a house where they were involved in satanic worship. There's a lot of satanic symbols and pictures and uh, death metal bands like Slayer and all this kind of stuff. And, and so I took it and I actually overdosed. I was unconscious on the floor for about three hours. I wasn't a Christian. I wasn't religious. I was tormented by demons for about three hours. And that episode left me with what psychologists would have diagnosed as drug-induced psychosis where from 16 to 19, the television would actually speak to me. The radio would speak to me. I'd hear a voice every day speaking to me, telling me that no one loved me, that I should kill myself. And at 19 years old, I almost ended my life. I got very close. And the only thing that stopped me was that I had an auntie that had been praying for me for 17 years that I would encounter the love of Jesus Christ. And I want to speak to every auntie, grandma, father, grandfather, friend, I'm telling you, no one is ever too far gone. The prayers of a believer can literally transform and change someone's life. And she is the reason that I'm standing on this pulpit today because she never gave up and she continued to pray. And uh, I had a moment when I was 23 with that particular auntie where uh, I wept and uh, through a phone call and I, I gave my life to Jesus uh, in that moment. And, and I went to church the next day and... and uh, you know, I got born again. I heard the gospel. I gave my life to Jesus. My spirit came alive to God. I was full of joy. I was happy. But I still struggled with this 10-year addiction. 
See, because who knows that you can be born again, you can love Jesus, but still have stuff going on in your life. That's called being a human being, and it's why we need a Savior. His name is Jesus. And, and so I, I loved God, but I kept struggling with this addiction. And I heard the pastor, I'm oh, sorry, we're in America, so I heard the pastor, uh, I, I'm a little bilingual now, just un poquito. Uh, so I heard the pastor say that there was nothing God couldn't do. And as a two-week-old Christian, I went home and I got on my hands and knees and I said, God, the pastor said there's nothing you can't do. I want you to take this addiction away from me. And then all of a sudden, faith began to rise. See, faith began to rise because a lady had been praying for 17 years. And as faith began to rise, I began to hit the ground and I said, God, when will you do it? And as clear as day, I hear this voice in my heart that says 726. I was a brand new Christian. It actually startled me. I stood up and I thought, what does that mean? Like 726. I hadn't looked at my kitchen clock for at least a couple hours. And as I was thinking, what does that mean? I caught a glimpse of my kitchen clock and it was exactly 726. And it was at that moment I knew that I knew that I knew that I'd never need drugs again, never need cigarettes again, never had a desire, never had a withdrawal. You know, the thing that I love is that what took the devil 23 years of his downward, destructive, demonic cycle just took God one word. One word to say it's done, it's finished, it's broken. And you know what? Maybe you've got stuff going on in your life that no one even knows about. Maybe you feel like you've been going around the same mountain. It's not just cliche that one word from heaven can literally change your life. One word from heaven can restore a marriage, can heal a body, can break something off of our lives. And I'm excited. I really want to pray for people at the end of this service. We had a whole, you know, maybe half the congregation come forward for prayer uh, in the first service. And we're going to do that again. Uh, I've got a photo of what I looked like when I was on drugs. There I am uh, making a cake. Uh, I can't tell you what's in the cake, but no, I'm just messing with you. Uh, I do that joke to just see how naughty the crowd is, and you guys are way up there. But anyway, now I'm starting to wonder why you came to the later service. But anyway, no, no, I'm just messing with you. Who knows you can have fun in church, yeah? Jesus was fun. And, uh, you know, religion tries to take the fun out of following Jesus. But following Jesus is fun because he's a God of joy and life and hope. And, and so I want to share with you this morning, I, I literally feel like I've been traveling the world for, this is my eighth year of full time. We've been living by faith, have been all over the world. And, but I feel like, for me, January 26th this year, everything changed. And really what happened in January 26th is I had my own private freedom experience. God actually delivered me of some oppression. Even as I was traveling the world preaching, there was this oppression going on in my life. And I had an encounter where God set me free radically. That was the moment that it changed privately. I'm going to share that story uh, at the end of the service, the last thing that I do. But where it changed publicly, it was the first weekend of March. I've seen a lot of people get free over, at that point it had been seven full years. But the first weekend of March was the first time I ever shared the story that I'm going to share with you at the end of this service of my own freedom experience. And it was the day that it all changed publicly. And, and I... I shared the story and during the service, God started to move and a lady dropped to her knees and started crying and someone else started crying and I've seen stuff like that happen many times. But then what happened was the service was dismissed and because people had heard this story and they're related to it one by one, I'd have someone come to me and say, hey, I connected to your story, can you pray for this, this and this? And then I'd pray and bang, that person got free. 
And then the next person would come and bang, that person just peace all over and they, they got free. And another one, another one, another one, and about 10 people all got free in a row. But then I got to this young lady, and this is a bit of an out there story, but it's the way it happened. It's a story that happened like this many times in the Bible days. But I got to this young lady, she was about, I don't know, 27, 28 years old, she had a couple kids. And I held her hand, I said, hey, what, what do I need to pray for, sweetheart? And, and she said, well, when I was, uh, I think it was the age 9 to 13, and this is a bit horrific, but she was made to be a sex slave amongst her family for, for four years of her life, 9 to 13. She said, I married a man at 18 years old, and I thought he was my Prince Charming, that he'd be the one to rescue me from this nightmare of life. But it turns out that he also was a pedophile. He raped her most days for five years. I have her whole testimony on a video that goes for 15 minutes, four weeks after this experience. I could never show it publicly because she goes into so much graphic detail of what happened over five years of marriage. I grab her hand and I say, all right, I'm going to pray. And I start praying in the name of Jesus. This comes from her story four weeks later. What she says happened from her account is she felt, as I started to pray, she said she actually felt fire going through her entire body. She actually has no recollection of the next 10 minutes of what took place. But what took place is as I began to pray and fire went through her, she fell to the ground and she actually began to manifest. Most of the church had already moved on out to the foyer. There was just the interns packing up and the pastors. And she literally started to manifest, started to speak to me in a man's voice. The pastors had never seen anything like this. Their jaws were on the ground. The interns were freaking out. To be honest, I was freaking out. But I kept praying for this young lady and praying in the name of Jesus that whatever was oppressing her would, would break. And, and after about 10 minutes, it's probably the most beautiful experience that I'll take with me when I one day go to heaven. But after 10 minutes, it was like it broke and her face changed in front of me, and she literally began to weep, and all she could say was, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free. And I watched that young lady get free of maybe 15 years of torments. She says in her testimony, which was recorded four weeks later, that when she got to work on Monday morning, her work colleagues hardly recognized her. They were coming up to her saying, what have you done? You, you, you look different, your eyes are different. But you know, I would say that since March, and God did this thing in me, I've seen more freedom miracles since March than I did in seven years of full-time travel. Every week I'm seeing people that were bound by pornography for a decade in a moment completely set free. I'm seeing people that with anxiety and panic attacks that in a moment are radically getting set free. You know, one of the big ways, and Pastor alluded to this, and it's something we've got here today, is one of the big things that changes, we relaunched our ministry, and it's called A Freedom Experience. The guys have got a slide. And my wife and I have given our life to help as many people on the planet have a freedom experience. It's afreedomexperience.com. And what we've put together is a 21-day journey where someone renews their mind, where you actually permanently change one mindset over 21 days. It's full of God encounter, God dealing with things, but, but we, we teach you this eight to 10 minute sort of meditation thing with the Word of God where you will, where you will permanently change a mindset, and you work on that same mindset every day for 21 days. 
And uh, you can actually sign up that, to that today. I'm going to be out in the foyer. I'll, I'll talk more about it. But your church is doing something that no other church has done. This is normally $47, but your church is actually going to pay half of the cost. So there's a code, and if you do sign up later, apart from now, for the next two weeks, there's a code, coupon code Chair City, which would give you 50% off the price, which church is picking up the bill. But you can come and see me uh, about that later. But we're going to pray for people today, and I want to look at a scripture in uh, John chapter 8, verses 1 to 11. It says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees, and, and in the Bible, the, the, the Pharisees, they, they really, they, they showed a religious spirit. And, and the thing with the religious spirit that I, I really dislike is a religious spirit always comes in the name of good. But rather than give life, it pushes people down and makes them feel bad. And so it, it says that the, the, the they made uh, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand. Listen, they made her stand before the group. See, religion is always about pointing out and exposing sin. Jesus is always about covering our sin. See, the Bible says love covers a multitude of sins. And that doesn't mean covering that he's just okay with keep doing it. He loves us so much that he wants to see us victorious, but he never wants to expose and publicly disgrace. He wants to deal with our stuff in private so we can go from glory to glory. It says, teacher, this woman, listen to this, was caught in the act of adultery. In other words, they caught her sleeping with someone that wasn't her husband. Probably someone that was married. They, they, they most probably grabbed her by her hair and dragged her through the streets. See, you've got to understand this didn't happen in Boston in the age that we live in today. This woman lived in a time in the Middle East where she knew her life was about to end. She probably knew other women that had been caught doing the same thing and they were stoned to death. That have rocks thrown at them until they were dead. She knew that there was no mercy or grace with the Pharisees. She's dragged by her hair. And they say in the law of Moses, see the thing I hate about a religious spirit, and I actually lost my Bible between now and the last service, but that's okay. And, and, and the thing I hate about a religious spirit is it always comes in the name of good. See, they use the scripture. Jesus, the law says, we should stone such women. Now, now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. See, this woman was set up. Because they were using her to test Jesus. They knew that Jesus would be there at this moment. And she was set up so that it could be a trap in order to test Jesus. But Jesus bent down. And he started to write on the ground with his finger. <clears throat> when they kept questioning him, he straightened up. And he said, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down on the ground and, and he wrote on the ground. At this, those who began to go away one at a time. The, old, the older ones first. I love that. Because the longer you've been a Christian, the more you know that you've messed up. I thought when I became a Christian, the longer I would be a Christian, the better I'd get. And in one sense, of course, I've become better. But the longer you've been on earth, the more occasion there have been because of our sinful nature where we've let ourselves down. And the older walk away first. Until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. 
Jesus straightened up and he asked her, and this is the preface of the message that I want to talk about today. Women, where, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, now go and leave your life of sin. Another translation is, now go and sin no more. See, religion says the opposite. Religion says, stop sinning or you'll be condemned. Jesus says, I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. And there's a big thing because religion wants to deal with the surface level, the issue, the issue, the band-aid fix, the problem, the behavior, what you're looking at, the struggle. But Jesus is like, no, let's deal with what's fueling the behavior, and then the problem will take care of itself. See, we know that we, we, it seems that this woman was set up. It also appears, where's the man? The man wasn't there. He should have been brought there as well, but obviously he was in on it where he was set up. So, so I could probably allude, and I'm taking liberty here, but this lady was most probably known to have a reputation. She had probably had a reputation for being promiscuous, so they chose her to set her up. If she was known to be promiscuous, the reason she was being promiscuous is because she probably felt unworthy her whole life. She had felt condemned her whole life. Maybe she didn't have a dad to tell her she was beautiful and wonderful and was going to be used of God. Maybe she gave away her virginity at a young age where a young man told her he'd love her, but the moment she gave it away, he left in a heartbeat. See, this woman was acting in this kind of way because she obviously already felt condemned. She was unworthy. But what Jesus does is he doesn't deal with the behavior. He deals with what's fueling the behavior. In other words, sweetheart, I need you to know you're not condemned. I'm the one that could condemn you because I'm the only one without sin. But I choose to say you're beautiful, you're holy, you're blameless. You're going to be used by God. See, condemn. come on, let's give God praise. See, when something is condemned, a house is condemned, it means it can no longer be used for the purpose that it was built for. She probably walked around feeling like I could never be used because of the mistakes that I've made. But Jesus deals with the source. He says, no, uh, you're not condemned. I'm still going to use you. And see, her understanding who she was is the thing that empowers her to sin no more. See, religion just wants to deal with this, but Jesus says, no, let's deal with the source and the behavior will take care of itself. Think about even in Galatians where it talks about the fruit of the Spirit. You know, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control. What's the last? Two more. Gratitude? Whatever they are. But, but see, think about it. It doesn't call it the fruit of Lucas. It's the fruit of the Spirit. So when you see love and joy and goodness and kindness in my life, it's being also fueled by something, but something awesome in God Almighty. But I just want to quickly look today at some things that definitely fuel behaviors in our life, because often we're looking at the behavior. But if we look at what's fueling it, then the behavior will take care of itself. Three things that really commonly, and then we're going to pray at the end, three things that fuel wrong behavior. Number one is past hurts. When we carry 
past hurts, that they come out in different areas of our life. See, who knows this woman was, she had a test in front of her. Because Jesus said to her, hey, who's left to condemn you? She had to make a decision to live in the present and say, no one, Jesus. What she could have done is brought the past into the present. She could have interpreted as, okay, Jesus, you want to know who's condemned me? Well, what about my father who wasn't around? I know I'm taking liberty. What about my grade eight maths teacher that, that, that said I was stupid? What about the boy that I gave my virginity to? And Jesus, don't get me started on the hundred or so men that were just standing here saying I should die. Who knows, she could have brought her past into her present and she never would have got her miracle or her breakthrough. You know, this happens in marriage, if I can be real for a moment. At times, my wife and I will have a heated discussion. It's Christian for argument. And we'll have a, an argument and she'll say something that kind of triggers and annoys me and, and I'll start to get angry on the inside. And sometimes, if I be honest with you, my anger will almost turn to rage. And most times, I said most times, I'm still working on it, most times I'm smart enough to walk away because I know anything that I say in that moment is not going to be good. And most times I walk away and I'll sit there and I'll almost be perplexed and I'll think, well, hang on a second. Like what she did, yes, it was annoying that thing she said, but it was like a two out of ten. But how come my anger was like an eight and it doesn't make sense because two shouldn't equal eight. But the reason two sometimes equals eight is because I'm still hanging on to the two from four months ago and the one from three months ago and the two from a month ago and the one from last week. And because I haven't dealt with the past hurts, forgiven, let go of stuff, then I've brought that to the present and that's why my anger is at an eight. I remember praying for this lady who was a, um, is a pastor, and uh, not far from here, and uh, she's the uh, female, and really struggled with anxiety most of her life. Her daughter was starting to watch mum so much that her daughter was starting to take on the anxiety also. She had been praying for some time that she needed to deal with this, and it really manifested in the way that she wouldn't hop on airplanes. She was so fearful, and if she hopped on an airplane, she was an absolute mess. I came to a church and did a weekend like this and, and I said, on Monday morning, I'm going to meet you and your husband and we're going to do a session together and we're going to pray and get to the bottom of this. That morning before she came to the session, God gave her a dream and he showed her a thing that had happened about 35 years ago. She hadn't thought or talked about it in 20 years and that when she was 13 years old, her uncle sexually abused her just one day. She never, ever told another human being. She never told her parents. She just lived with her. She told her husband when they got married, but they hadn't talked about it for 20 years. She came to me and she said, listen, God showed me this thing this morning, and we were able to pray. She was able to forgive her uncle. Now, hear me. Forgiving her uncle doesn't mean saying what her uncle did was right. It was wrong. When you forgive someone, it's not giving a gift to them, but it's giving a gift to yourself. Because as long as she hangs on to that, she's the one that's affected. You can forgive someone, but still make sure they go to jail. 
And so we ministered this kind of inner healing and, and there was many tears and she got free in that moment or, or a freedom journey started in that moment. You know, there's two schools of thought when it comes to looking inward and examining yourself. And there's one school where the church kind of says, don't look inward, don't examine yourself. Just focus on the finished work of Christ. And if I was going to go to one of these two extremes, that's the one I'd lean to a little more. The other one is more a holiness kind of thing where it's like you better find every single thing that is wrong in you and deal with it. That's like depressing. Like if I wake up every morning trying to find stuff wrong with me, I'm going to walk around depressed all day. Because we all have a sinful nature. But I remember God speaking to me because in Corinthians it talks about, when Paul talks about communion, he says to examine yourself. But then he says to take the bread, which is the body, and the wine, which is the blood. I remember God speaking to me, he says, Lucas, the only time you should examine yourself is while you are holding on, and I mean this symbolically, not just in the act of communion, but only examine yourself when you're holding on to the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. See, because I can look inward and I can find stuff I don't like, but it's okay because I'm holding on to the body and the blood of Jesus Christ that says I'm holy. I can forgive someone that doesn't deserve forgiveness because I'm holding on to the body and the blood of Jesus. And if he forgave me, then I guess I can forgive that person that doesn't deserve forgiveness. <clears throat> the second thing that... that, that fuels wrong behavior is destructive mindsets. See, again, when Jesus is talking to this young girl, he, he, he has a moment, he's got to communicate, hey, I don't condemn you. Because he knows that she's carried this mindset where she's believed I'm unworthy, I'm not good enough, I can't be used. And as long as she keeps thinking like that, the behavior will continue to manifest. A lot of us carry different mindsets that are destructive. The biggest reason why we started our 21-day journey. See, I believe in both things. I believe that one touch changes everything. But I also believe in renewing your mind. Because if you get a touch from God that breaks something off and you don't change the way you think, then I'll see you in six months at the same altar call for the same thing. Because it's what you believe is the thing that drives you in life. And that's why we work on a mindset every day. Neurologists teach that if you work on the same mindset every day for 21 days, 8 to 10 minutes, you permanently rewire your brain and change your DNA. You know, when I prayed for this lady, the pastor with anxiety that had been abused, and she was crying because God was dealing with the, the hurts of her past. And then God spoke to me and he said, get her to say this prayer. And I said, hey, repeat after me. And, and I said, Father. She said, Father. I said, say this. Say, thank you that I can trust you to protect me. She said, thank you that I, thank you that I, she couldn't say the words. She couldn't say, thank you that I can trust you to protect me. Because she had developed a mindset, and understandably so, because when she was 13, she, she saw that you couldn't trust God to protect you. So now she develops a mindset that you can't trust God to protect you. Think about how her fear was manifesting. She wouldn't hop in an airplane. 
If you don't believe God, you can trust God to protect you, I ain't hopping on a tin can that flies through the sky. She got ministered to of her past, but she also did our 21-day freedom experience, and today she is 100% free of all anxiety. And her daughter is now watching mum dominate in life and not taking on the same stuff. You know, same with uh, uh, whenever someone gets in an addiction, there's always a victim mentality that's formed. Because when you give authority away to something so many times, you become the tail and that thing becomes the head. And you have to change a mindset to rather from being a victim to be victorious, that I am more than a conqueror, that I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, that I am the head and not the tail. Last thing, just if the music team wants to come, the last thing I want to talk about is oppression. And this one's one that's not talked about a lot in the church. See, in the 90s, the church, if some of you that were there, the church went a bit crazy. It was like there was a demon under every bush. You know, someone sneezed, it's a demon. But, but, but what's happened in the church today around the world is it's the absolute opposite. It's like demons no longer exist. They, they all just disappeared. Or, or the other thing that's happened is we demonize demons. And in other words, the only person that might have influence of demonic is that homeless guy that's yelling out profanities. And we're like, well, I'm not like him. But demonic oppression is actually really common. And we're trying to medicate a lot of things that are actually demonic oppression. See, the plan of the enemy in today's age, 100% is to hide. Think about this. America, America has countries that are enemies. They might not always say it publicly, but there are certain countries they know are enemies of this nation. And what do they do? They send spies, don't they? And what do the spies do? The spies hide, but they work at dismantling kingdoms. Why do they send spies? Because if they send a spy, they know that there'll be no retaliation because they can't see what's happening. And they don't want retaliation. They don't want to start a war. See, the enemy does the same thing. He comes and he hides because if he stays hidden, then we won't retaliate. We'll just call it everything but oppression and we'll look for everything else to solve the problem. But who knows if it's a spiritual problem, it can't be solved with a natural solution. And actually, oppression is so much more common. And the way I think of oppression, demonic oppression, is simply when the devil has found a legal right to be able to speak. Think about this. The scripture says, if the sun goes down while you're angry, you give the devil a foothold. What what is that? That just means you've given him the right to speak. I've been married 18 years. I'd be lying to you if I said there wasn't a few nights that I went to bed angry and the sun went down. But the devil doesn't wake me up the next morning and say, well, Lucas, I want you to know you disobeyed the scripture. So from now on, Lucas, I'm going to be speaking to you for the next few months about your wife. It'll all be negative. He doesn't do that. What he does is he speaks as if he's me. So now my wife does something the next morning because I gave the devil a foothold. I'm in offense. And the next morning she does something that annoys me slightly, but, but now that this thought comes as if it's mine, so she's doing that on purpose just to annoy me. What did she really mean when she said good morning? 
Did she have tone? Or, or, you know, there's another scripture where it talks about the parable of the guy that gets forgiven the unpayable debt, but then he finds someone that owes him a payable debt, but he doesn't forgive and he throws the guy in the jail. And the master finds out and he says, you wicked servant, you'll be thrown away and the tormentors will have their way with you. What, what are the tormentors? It's a picture of oppression. When you are in unforgiveness toward anyone, no matter what they did, you have given the devil a legal right to speak. And if he keeps speaking, eventually bitterness will start to appear in your heart. You know, for this lady, and we don't know this for sure, we don't know how many men were standing there saying condemn her. We don't know that. But let, let's just, let's guess. and Let's say there was a hundred. And there was a hundred of these men and they were, they, were, they, were, they were jeering. Jesus, the word says, stone her, kill her, condemn her. She's unworthy. She's a sinner. And the picture of these men is kind of a picture of demonic oppression. Because maybe she had been hearing that noise her whole life. Like physically it was happening now, but spiritually she'd been under that same oppression, that same noise. Let me finish with this story, then we're going to pray. I, I've I had struggled probably for my whole life in the area of guilt, shame, and condemnation. I, I'd go speak at a church with thousands of people and see hundreds give their lives to Jesus. And then one thing would happen and I'd, I'd be consumed by guilt and I'm not good enough and I'm unworthy. And for my whole Christian life, it was like a roller coaster. Depending on what was going on, there were times when it was like here and it was debilitating where times I almost couldn't get out of bed. But then there'd be other times where it wasn't so bad, but it was just always in the background. You don't fit in. You're not good enough. You're unworthy. For 20 years, and I've tried to renew my mind for 20 years. I know every scripture there is in the Bible about self-worth. I've quoted them. I've meditated on them. I just never could break through. And I thought, well, it's because my dad was a drug addict. My parents got divorced. I was from a lower socioeconomic family. There's some mistakes I've made as a leader. This year in January, my church once a year, they do a, a, a one Sunday a year where they talk on freedom. And really they talk about freedom from oppression, how easy it is to get oppressed. See, when you look at stuff that you shouldn't look at, there's actually a spiritual world around that as well. When we enter into substances that we shouldn't enter into, there's a spiritual world. There's many ways that you can get oppressed. Trauma, you can get oppressed. But I listened to this session and I was away preaching and I thought to myself, man, I'm always ministering. I want someone to minister to me. So I rang a guy from the church, a lay pastor, who I know moves in this event, and I said, hey, would you meet me? And it was a Saturday, it was January 26th. We, I got real. See, I took off my mask. Let me tell you, your face can't get healed until you take off your mask. There's a lot of people that die with masks on because I never get the humility to sit one-on-one -on -one with someone and say, hey man, let me tell you what's really going on. That's the first step to getting healed. And I got real with this guy and we chatted and, and then he prayed for me and it was just a five-minute prayer like we're going to pray in a moment. And he prays this five-minute prayer and I've seen things in my heart before. I see like little pictures. And, and, and you know, it helps me minister to someone. But I'm not 100% that's from God. I'm pretty sure it is. And most time, you know, they cry. Or, and I was like, well, that was from God. 
but this time when he prayed, my eyes were closed. It wasn't like a, a, an image. I saw a vision in my spirit. And I saw this dark underground kind of room which represented my inner man. And there was a tunnel. And I saw these doors. I could draw what they looked like. They were the tops of them. They were barn doors. They were the shape of the tunnel. And I saw these doors and I heard them in my spirit. They went, and they closed. And as soon as I saw it, I knew with my eyes closed, I'm like, man, there's darkness behind those doors. And then I felt for 10 seconds joy. Literally like I was injected with it. It just went through my body for 10 seconds. Pure joy. I was like, wow. I went away. I knew something had changed. The next morning, I'm getting ready to preach at our church. My family had already left to go to church. They're going to meet me there. I walk in the bathroom. I'll never forget this moment. I walk in the bathroom to get, you know, to have a shower and that. And I walk in. And as I walk, I'm stopped in my tracks because I'm overwhelmed by how quiet my house is. But then I realize and a tear starts to flow, I think it's not how quiet my house is. It's how quiet my house is. That I had lived with this oppression for who knows whether it's 30, 40 years since I was a little boy. Just noise telling me I'm not worthy, I'm not good enough. I tried to renew my mind, but for me, there was the enemy had found a legal right that I just needed to deal with. And, and you know what? Since January 26, my marriage has never, ever been better. My personal life has never been better. Some areas that were sometimes a challenge are no longer a challenge. Literally, instantly. And you know what? Uh, why God showed me that picture is because the church, you know, most times someone doesn't manifest. Most times getting free of oppression is just closing some doors. But the devil's hiding, so we often don't know that there are doors that need to be closed. And I want to pray for you if you feel like you relate to that story. Maybe there's an area where you just feel like you're a bit out of control. You feel like, man, I don't know why I keep going to that thing. Or or maybe there's the noise of fear or low self-worth or spirit of heaviness or or, 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 or always self-pity or you're always insecure. It just won't go away. Maybe there's some noise that needs to be stopped. 